Welcome to WitKeeper's podcast. Today, our discussion will be about navigating your advancement career post-COVID. My name is Mercedes Chacon Vance. I am a senior partner with WitKeeper and a leader of our advancement practice. These are challenging times personally and professionally. Our work as executive search consultants is to counsel clients on hiring and candidates on navigating their careers. In this time of crisis, we found this takes on a bigger responsibility considering how the pandemic has impacted higher education and has transformed the way that all of us are living our lives daily. Over the past several months, we've heard from our, our conversations with clients and candidates that they wanna hear what the hiring market looks like and how they may best position themselves in this extraordinary time. What Kiefer decided the time was right to engage higher education advancement leaders to explore the questions, to share their thoughts, and lead a discussion about the current landscape in this 45-minute session. Our panelists today are three exceptional advancement professionals. I'd like to introduce our panelists, Teresa Davis, Courtney Searles, and Jay Stroman. Teresa Davis was recently appointed the Vice President for University Advancement and CEO of the Tower Foundation at San Jose State University. Prior to her move to SJSU, she was Assistant Vice President at Caltech and brings over 25 years of management and fundraising experience. Courtney Searles is currently American University's Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations, a position she's held since 2015. She previously served as Senior Vice President for Development at the Museum, and prior to this, she spent almost eight years at the University of Southern California. Jay Stroman is the Senior Vice President for Advancement and Alumni Affairs and CEO of the USF Foundation. Jay joins USF after serving as Senior Associate Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Georgia. I hope you enjoy this program and take away ideas about navigating your career in the post-COVID era. I'll turn things over to today's speakers. Thank you for joining us. All right, so we'll get started with the first question to Jay. Jay, candidates are wondering if they should enter the job market now or wait. Hey, thank you, Mercedes, for having all of us. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to share. Um, probably the million dollar question uh, out there. And, you know, what I'd say, it, it really comes down to where are you in your own professional career and what are you looking to achieve? You know, what are some of the goals you set out for yourself as, as you think about career and, and what you do? Um, a lot of it comes down to timing. Um, and, you know, why are you going to enter the market? And if you haven't thought through that, I would tell you it's probably not the right time to to enter the market. Uh, clearly, there's a global pandemic happening. Um, it's had a major impact on all of us, um, and especially the job market in higher ed. But I would say that's not a reason not to enter the job market. I would say it's a factor, um, something. Uh, but I do believe there's light at the end of the tunnel. I don't think it's a train that's coming. I, I do think we're all going to get through it. Um, but I can say from my particular situation, you know, I really wasn't looking for a, a new opportunity. I was very happy uh, at the University of Georgia doing a lot of great things. Uh, campaign was going well, but you know, search firms are really good, like Whit Kiefer, and I promise they didn't pay me for that promo. Um, they, they get you on the phone and they want to talk about who you know, and then ultimately you start hearing about an opportunity and you say, hmm, that sounds pretty good. And so uh, for me, it's always come down to three things, and I'll share this with the group. Uh, it's always come down to who's in leadership. And if you're at an SVP level or a vice president level, 
who is that president? What is that leadership? What is the partnership going to look like? That's extremely important. And I think that uh, is across the board at whatever level position you're looking for. Second is opportunity and fit. You know, is it the right opportunity? Can I see myself there being successful? And then third, and this is probably just me, uh, it's location. And I'm not gonna, uh, I don't wanna offend anybody that's on this uh, call, cause I don't know where everybody is, but I'm probably, what is, it wasn't interested in going to South Dakota uh, or, or, or somewhere like that, uh, this in, in my career. So again, I'd say it comes down to timing and, and can you see yourself being successful in whatever role you're, you're looking for? Teresa, Courtney, any thoughts on that question? No, actually, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with everything um, that Jay has just said. And, um, you know, particularly the part about thinking about whether it's the right time for you to move. Um, but, you know, it's, he's also right when he says that it's, you know, don't keep yourself from moving because of the pandemic. I know that, um, that there are organizations out there that are still hiring. Um, I have friends and colleagues who are being placed in positions as we speak. Um, I actually have um, some openings um, and will be hiring. And that's in a system where we've actually, we don't like saying that we have a, a hiring freeze, we're having a hiring chill, right? <laughs> we're just being very cautious about, um, and judicious really about what positions we hire into. But I have one or two where I really have to just go ahead and um, hire. And so there, the market is open um, and you absolutely can move. People are looking to hire, people are looking to be hired, but just um, being careful about um, whether or not the fit is right for you and if you'd like. Yeah. Excellent. Great. Uh, the next question will go to Teresa. Um, how do you think candidates should position themselves in the search process uh, right now? That's really a great question. You know, I, and this has not changed. Um, I think it should always be with an eye toward um, the key uh, elements of the job that the employer is looking for, right? Um, and so what I have always done with jobs I'm looking at is I look very closely at the position description and, um, and look at those key elements, those key requirements, that skill set that the employer is looking for. And it does a couple of things. One is it helps me to actually figure out whether or not this is a job that I want and that I would be any good at, right? I'm not talking about whether or not I thought that with training I'd be ready to um, take on the job, but is this a job that'd be a good fit for me and I'd be a good fit for them. So it helps me to do that. But the other is that it helps me to focus my intention on the cover letter, right? Because you may see as you're looking through that position description that you have the experience, but it was actually something that you gained fairly early in your career, maybe midway in your career. And so an employer looking um, at that, at your resume may not see straight away that you have that experience. And so you want to bring that to the front, lead, you know, don't bury the lead in your cover letter, actually talk about those experiences that you have, the skill set that you have that meets their, um, their job requirements. But to, to try and be sure that there's alignment between those key, uh, those key skills and your own experience. And by the way, I actually um, discourage people, and you may or may not agree with me, um, I actually discourage people from applying for jobs that are aspirational for them in the sense that they have almost none of the skills um, that the employer is looking for. And you know, the panelists laugh because you guys know that you've had those resumes come into your, cross your desk where you're going, did this person really look at, um, are, they, are they looking at my job? Um, it can be frustrating to the, to the potential employer. 
and you position yourself weak, you know, uh, you're in a position of weakness. And so um, if you have a, uh, if there's some work that you want to do that's aspirational, start to get some of that, build that skill set first, right? Get that experience so that it becomes an apparent next job for you. Then an employer can look at that and say, you know what? What my opening would be a great next step for this person. Um, the, but so you want to go in strong from a position of strength when you're applying for them. Mm -hmm. Great. Any thoughts from uh, Jay or Courtney on that yeah, question? Sure, Mercedes, thanks. I, I, I agree with you completely. And one thing I will say, every time, as people who are uh, seeking jobs, every time there is a vacancy in an office, you're, most of the time you're sad to see the person who left go, but there's also a little bit of hope from the hiring manager that in the new person, mm -hmm. you are going to get something, you're gonna solve a problem, you're gonna get something that you didn't have before. The more as a job seeker, you can probe what that hope is uh, by the hiring manager, the more you can help, uh, I think, match what your skill set is with what that place is looking for. Excellent. Great. Corey, I mean, this leads us into kind of the next question that I think fits well. Um, the skills that you think advancement teams are going to need um, post-COVID, um, you know, what you think your teams are going to need, what it's going to look like, and again, how, what things might be new to distinguish candidates um, in this time? Really important question, because I, I don't think it's any secret that our sector, the higher ed sector, is going through unprecedented change. And I'd say, once in a generation, if not once in a century, kind of disruption. And I, I feel strongly as, a, as an advancement leader that we have an obligation in hiring to hire people with the skills that will enable them to thrive in a dramatic change environment. And if you're not feeling that dramatic change environment yet, I don't care at what level, uh, what type of an institution it is going to come to our entire sector. And I think foundationally, there are three really important things that we have to look at uh, that, that in order to advance in this profession. And I think the first is versatility. And it's really the question, how do you see your role? Um, if you are a gift officer, if, if, the, if the research office a lean research office is put on a project that's going to help the whole division. As a gift officer, are you able to also analyze your portfolio and make uh, strategic and prioritization so that you can keep moving forward? If you are hired as a writer, are you simply trying to develop the case for support from what the dean or the, the, the program manager says? Or if you feel there's weakness to that case, can you also ask that we have to rely on other perspectives, we have to rely on other experiences in order to come up with questions in an environment that we don't know yet what the future is gonna bring. That, incidentally, that's why diversity and equity and inclusion issues are so important. Mm -hmm. If we don't learn how to utilize the perspectives um, and the experiences of other people, it's not just the right thing to do, it's how we're gonna be successful. Um, those ver versatility, agility, and ambiguity, working in those ways are absolutely essential. The last thing that I would say just as an overview is that um, we all know that giving is emotional, um, but in today's day and age and with the problems that need to be addressed in this world, uh, donors who give are gonna have a rational side as well. We have to know how to, to tap into the intellectual hopes and dreams of our constituents and help them solve those problems with our institutions. 
That's any question, any uh, feedback or any thoughts on that, Jay or uh, Teresa? Yeah, I, I think Courtney said it extremely well. You know, the two words that I've been using here lately with our teams is flexibility and adaptability. You know, I, I think, you know, like Courtney said, if you're not willing to embrace change, especially during the times we are in right now, you're not going to make it long term uh, in, in this industry. Or you, you might make it, but you won't be the best uh, employee or the best of, of what you need to be. So, you know, I think we get into this rut in our in, in our business practice that we're so cyclical. We do this in the fall, we do this in the winter, and we do this in the spring, and then we do it all over again. And we all preach, Courtney just said it, we all preach innovation. And we want our teams to be innovative, but do we really give them the opportunity to do that? And do we really have the team members on our team uh, that have that skill set that can think outside of the box and, and help us go to, to new heights. Great. Uh, next question, uh, Teresa. Um, what should candidates be doing now to prepare um, for the new market, the new normal um, with advancement jobs and advancement teams? Uh, we touched on some of it, but your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really interesting. If you've been listening to what Courtney and Jay just said, there's your answer really, right? Mm -hmm. Is that um, it's a number of things. One is that the, the required skills have not changed, right? Even in this environment, if you need someone who is a solid fundraiser, you still need that. If you need someone who's a solid manager, you still need that, right? And so it's a couple of things, a couple of different perspectives. One, is that if it's, um, if it's a position that you want to go into where you already have that skill set, you're like, you know, I'm ready to right now take the leap, find another job, then being sure that you have the skill set that you need to be successful at it. If you're thinking about making a change in a year, a year and a half, and this seems like a long time from now, but it's really not, particularly when you consider how long it takes to actually go through the hiring process um, to, uh, to actually go through the interviewing process of 18 months is not a long time away. To be thinking about what skills do you not now have that you want to get better at? So for example, here's some things that we weren't really thinking about a whole lot before the pandemic. Is it right now, and, and Courtney, I think, and Jay both talked about flexibility, right? Being able to pivot, right? If you're someone who does not have a level of comfort with ambiguity, or what I call a comfort with discomfort, you're going to find yourself having a difficult time, right? And so that's something to start to learn, to ease yourself into. How do I, um, how do I get myself comfortable with being flexible? Um, if I need to change, start to think about what's your thought process for, uh, for changing something quickly, um, for being flexible, for changing on a dime. You know, actually, there are people who think that I'm fairly flexible. The truth of it is, it's, what I've done to prepare for that is I have sort of a, a way of thinking to prepare myself to be flexible, right? So it's, it seems as though I am that, but I'm not really. There's just a thought process that I take myself through. Okay, so first of all, it's a problem to be solved. What's my problem solving strategy, right? And it so feels like I'm doing this quickly, but it's really a process that I have. So start to figure out now what that is like for yourself. So it's one, the thing that has not changed is being sure that you solidly have the skill set um, that you need, that your employer is asking for. If you don't have it, start to think longer term, right? Okay, so I'm not quite ready to make this move into this particular 
position that I know I'm going to want to do? What's my 18-month strategy, right? And then third, get yourself comfortable with the kinds of technology, right, that we are using right now. If you, I love to tell the story about how, um, and this was just as recently as, say, February or March, um, there was a Zoom meeting that I had to participate in. And I hadn't really been using Zoom. It had been like years, frankly, since I didn't even use Skype. And so I sat down in front of the computer 30 minutes before the Zoom meeting and made sure I knew where the link was. Now it's like Zooming. I'm sitting down like five minutes before it's time to click on that link and go, right? And so get some flex and comfort level with the different kinds of communications uh, technology that you'll have to use, whether that's Zoom, whether that's on the phone, ensure that you sell it, you know how to communicate in email. Um, and if you're a fundraiser, even think about it in terms of how might your conversation, your demeanor be different if you're talking with a donor in a Zoom conversation versus one where you're sitting across the table from them, right? Um, it's really not, um, you know, as you don't have the same number of dimensions that they're able to perceive you from um, in a Zoom conversation as you would have in person. So are you leaning into the camera a little bit? How are you looking at them? How are you engaging them during that conversation? Start to get comfortable. Practice now with your colleagues, right? And <laughs> your friends to start to build those skills. So that'll help you be ready for that next job. Any thoughts, uh, dear Courtney, in that, uh, on, those, on that topic? Okay, great. Um, we go on to Courtney. Um, how, how, how do you feel candidates should evaluate the financial strength of potential employer institutions? That's a really good question. You, and I'm sure, Teresa and Jay, you're seeing this every, all of you are seeing this every day. I do not wake up and look at an article, whether it's inside higher ed or somewhere, where there's not some uh, article about places in peril and institutions in peril. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of algorithms out there right now. There's one recently that talks about uh, you look at all of these pieces and say, is this institution going to thrive? Is it going to survive? Is it going to struggle or is it going to perish? Um, here, here's what I would say, three things that I would recommend you look at. First is just public record. And, and you should always do that. And granted, you can look at financial statements. You can, you can find financial statements, but look up the credit rating. Look up the Moody's or the standards and poor of the institution. They do the work for you. You don't have to try to pour through a financial statement and figure out and analyze it for themselves. Let the, let the, the credit rating agencies do that for you. You learn a lot, not only about the place now, but kind of what its future outlook is. Uh, the second thing I would highly recommend is to spend some time looking at how the institution is handling the crisis. And most are putting out you know, you go on websites, most are putting out memos, they're talking about how they handled the spring, how they handled the fall. And I think there's a few things that you should look at. If you, if you really look at the tone of those memos, and, and this takes some, I think this, it takes reading several of them to start to see this, but you can tell by the tone and the, the, the confidence, I think, whether a place is in it to win it or in it to survive it. Uh, whether it's just let's get through this thing or all right, take it head on. And I think that the, that, that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is looking at the specificity and the availability of the specificity of the plans for how that institution is going to make up losses, is going to handle some of the changes. Because I think the more specific 
the plans are, the more confident the institution is, the more the institution is grounded in reality. It doesn't mean that just because a place is going to lose a lot of money and the next year doesn't mean that it's not going to make it. If you really look carefully, you'll see who can analyze the reality of where they are and have plans to get to get through it. And the um, the the third thing that I think that you should look at besides those um, those oh the third thing is also is that, are they just trying to come up with a plan for the the semester, or are they looking for how do we get through this? Uh, my boss always says this is going to be a two year at least a two year issue. So as we're looking at this, let's not just think about getting through it. Let's think about coming out on the other end stronger. Um, the third so there's public record. There's the announcement. Third thing that I would do if you're seeking a job at an institution is ask the question, how do you see the role of advancement uh, in the institution, especially now given the COVID crisis? Because I think you want to beware if someone sees fundraising as the elixir, if they believe that, uh, that fundraising or alumni engagement is a short-term is, there are short-term pieces to what we do, but if they think you're going to get an answer just like that and it's going to solve all their problem, they may not have uh, the same understanding of what value you can bring to that institution. Great answers. Jay and Teresa, do you have any thoughts? I mean, both of you are, are pretty new into your jobs. Um, I know that you came in and, and were hired before. Um, before the, the pandemic, but any thoughts about how you navigated that when you were looking um, at if this was the right fit for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, Courtney said it well, don't be afraid to ask the question. You know, you, you got to do your research. We're, we're all successful development officers because I think we're able to do research and figure things out on our own and then strategically put that into play. But you can't be scared to ask what, what is the financial situation of the university? And more importantly, the area that you're going into and see what kind of, see what kind of information you get back. Um, you know, doing everything that Courtney said, looking at the 990s and looking at uh, public information, I think is important. And also, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be working with a, a good search firm, don't be scared to ask the lead consultant, you know, what, what do you think? Now, you know, they're always going to put a positive spin on it. Um, but they're also, if they're really good, they're not going to, they're not going to sugarcoat it either. They're going to say, hey, there's some challenges there or, um, or no, you know, like University of South Florida, triple A bond rating, you know, that, that gave me a lot of confidence. There were some questions that I asked about the financial stability of the institution, because you always want to know what you're walking into. And then once you get there, Will you have the resources in order to be successful? And as long as you have that commitment uh, up front, uh, I think you can be successful. Yeah, I agree very much with um, Courtney and Jay, everything that they've said. I'd say additionally, um, you know, go to the websites of the campuses and look at their leaderships pages, right? So what, is the, what are the messages, the emails, the communiques that the president is, is, is sending out to the campus? Um, I'm fortunate to um, be a part of the California State University system, and uh, California has three primary state uh, systems. And so one is the California State University system, the CSU, the UC system, which is the University of California, and then we have our community college system. And so for, uh, uh, for the California State system, we have a chancellor. Go to the chancellor's office. 
and see what messages he's been sending out to the 23 campuses. Um, if you're thinking about a particular campus organization, this is for whether it's higher ed or other nonprofits, um, go and see if the president has a web page, right? What, if they're having budget issues and they're wanting to be, uh, to calm the troops, <laughs> or frankly, just to convey information, the status of things to the troops, you'll find those things out there. You know, Mercedes, one thing that I wanted to add, and but you notice how we all, we would be terrible on a debate stage, on a political debate stage, because we all agree. But, uh, <laughs> so hopefully that's not boring. But we, uh, no, I, I, I agree with what you're saying too. And one thing that I wanted to add is, I think another really good question to ask people, uh, whether it's academic leadership, uh, the president, the board, is ask them what they think the role of an advancement officer of an advancement office is in the life of the institution. Because if, if they view it as it is your job as a silo to go out and engage the alumni, it is your job to bring in that money versus understanding that it is our advancement operation that leads and facilitates the process of bringing in philanthropic gifts and engagement to the university, uh, that's a big, if they think it's your job to do it all, that's a, a telltale sign. You want to ask more questions. Great, great answers. Thank you all for uh, chiming in on that one. I think that one's a really important one uh, right now. Uh, Jay, in your opinion, how, what do you think the competition is going to be like uh, kind of moving forward and, and good jobs right now? Yeah, they probably should ask you this question, Mercedes. You, you guys do it uh, all all the time. But, you know, it really depends on what your definition of a good job is. You know, every good job is competitive, you know, and I think it depends on, you know, where you're looking. If you're looking at the, the highest level, the senior VP, the VP positions, and it's a national search, it's going to be ultra competitive. If it's more regional or maybe a little bit smaller institution, or depending on where the location is, it might be a little bit smaller pool that you might be up against. Um, you know, and then you're going to want to look at, you know, what is the, what's the package look like? You know, are they competitive uh, in, in salaries and other things that will be out there? And then, you know, like I said, what is the opportunity and location? But I'd also say, you know, don't worry about the competition. You know, worry about putting yourself uh, forward in the best way uh, in, in a job search where you think you can be successful. You know, we're all competitive people, I think, in this industry, or we probably wouldn't be in this industry. Um, and, and I think it serves us well uh, most, most of the time. But don't, don't be scared to put yourself out there. I think there's a lot of talented advancement professionals out there that have various degrees of experience. And it comes down to a lot of time uh, about fit and it's on both sides of the street. It's, it's fit for you when you're looking for the job, but ultimately that, that, that college, that president, that board of trustees or that AVP or VP has to fit, has to see you fitting in to their organization and bringing something to the table that they don't already have. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of competition, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be concerned about it. Great. Any thoughts, uh, Courtney or Teresa? Good answer. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. 
so that concludes uh, the presentation part. Uh, we'll now begin the question and answer portion of today's program. Um, as noted previously, you're welcome to submit questions via the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Uh, and we'll try to get to as many as time allows. Um, all right, so a couple of you have come in already. I'll start with Courtney on this one. Uh, how do you navigate being vocal about a candidate or, a, or um, uh, a major gift officer, principal gift officer about promotion within their own institution while being sensitive to the huge budget constraints that are facing um, institutions right now? It's a great question. It's something I, it's something we always have to worry about leaders. You know, you I, I always think we have two roles with our teams and, and I'm blessed to have a great one. You um, you have to you want them to be growing and being a part of your institution and making a difference. But then we're also advancement professionals, as Jay was talking about. And so you want them to do well and move on and continue to grow. Um, it, 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 to Teresa's point, for the places in a hiring freeze, you know, I worry very much if those promotions can't go forward. And I think there's a couple of things that we have to do, not knowing how long these hiring freezes will last. One is obviously um, when, when necessary and when you have to advocate, you've got to advocate with data. You've got to, advocate, you've got to be able to advocate with um, what you believe you can deliver and how that is going to solve a problem for the institution now. We are all fortunate in that uh, many of the things that this pandemic and uh, what we're facing, philanthropic money is gonna be a part of it. And so if we are able to demonstrate how folks can make a difference. I will say though, I also feel an obligation as a member of cabinet to help with the fiduciary responsibility of the university. And there is going to be a time right now where uh, the pressure of spending additional money is not what's best for the institution. And that is a really difficult balance because losing a great person is not great for the institution either. And I think part of what we have to do is really understand with those talented professionals where they're at and what they need right now in their career. So just like the institution, when we come out of this, when the hiring freeze lift, we have put them in a position either for that raise, either for that promotion, or either for that next step. And that might mean for now, giving them more responsibility, finding very creative ways to develop growth uh, that, that aren't necessarily monetary at this point. It's a great question. Great. There, there is a question that came in that kind of uh, dovetails from that question uh, that we thought might work well since we're on the subject. Uh, kind of, do you feel that you foresee levels of compensation dropping within some of your, uh, your areas because of this, Courtney, for some of the reasons that you've talked about, um, you know, kind, trying to balance the current financial constraints, um, but trying to retain and recognize those high performers? Do you think that, where do you think the balance is going to be there? We, uh, uh, any of you, if, um, I mean, Courtney, you... I'll let someone else answer. Yeah. Please, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, sorry, Teresa. I, I'll jump in. You know, I, I think we're all in the same avenue. It, we're in a war for talent across, you know, all of us that sit in leadership roles, whether you're at the top or middle management and all that, you know, we, we want to hire smart, talented people who can come in and really be successful and do a great job. It makes us all look better 
um, and it makes the institution better. And when we get those types of individuals, we want to do everything in our power to retain them. Um, some of it, a lot of it may be through compensation from salary perspective, but sometimes it's also about giving them other opportunities that may be not related to salary. Maybe they want to become a manager and they don't have the opportunity. They haven't been able to experience that yet. Or maybe they want to try to do something else within the organization, be a mentor to other development officers coming in. I think there are other ways to reward really smart, talented people that you want to keep in your organization. Yes, ultimately, will it come down to money? Uh, probably. Um, but, but I do think going back to Courtney's earlier point, you know, when you can show, demonstrate ROI and why making an investment in skilled position people that bring in revenue to the institution makes a lot of sense, uh, you seem to be able to get some support. So even though you're going through tough, difficult times uh, from a, maybe an institutional standpoint, I don't think you ever uh, want to let your guard down on what your talent looks like, how you're able to attract it, but most importantly, how you're able to retain it through a lot of different ways. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you, Jay. Um, you know, particularly when we think about whether or not, um, you know, salaries would be decreasing over uh, during this tough budgetary period. Um, to your point, Jay, you want to be able to retain really top talent. And so um, we don't see ourselves um, on my campus reducing salaries per se. We want to remain competitive and marketable. Um, and in fact, given, um, particularly those of you who live in California, you know that uh, the state school systems are having, um, having some budget issues that we have to address. There's been a fairly significant cut. And so we are right now members of the cabinet trying to figure out how do we um, address this budget problem and not have any layoffs. Some of the CSU campuses have had to uh, go with layoffs in order to address the budget. We think at San Jose State, we're probably not going to have to do that this year. Um, that's the hope, we're still working on the budget. So we're not wanting to cut salaries, no, we want to remain competitive, um, the, but the budget, that we're addressing right now is over the course of three years, right? So that's what we think we're probably gonna land this year. Next year, who knows? The CSU may actually uh, go into furloughs, which to some people will feel like a pay cut, right? It's not permanent, but you're receiving less salary than you were receiving before. Um, and so we're having to address the budget in terms of things like that. As a campus, do we have to have layoffs? Um, will next year, will we have to go through furloughs? Will there need to be some combination of the two? But I don't see us in our organization actually looking at people who are receiving one salary right now and then we're going to have to cut um, the level of those salaries going forward. I don't see that at this moment. I agree. And if you don't mind a third weighing in on this, because I'm sure it's important to people, I think, you know, it, it's interesting. I think about it the same way that we, that universities are talking about discounting tuition. Um, you, the fact that we're going online and, and the places are going online, in some cases people are asking for a discount, Horton, not to say that you need a discount because online is an inferior modality. That's not the case. The case is for many people discounting, it's because there, it's, it's hard times and there's hardship. We need to be able to, while yes, 
institutions need to look at ways to deliver what they're doing in a, with the budget in a way that's more affordable and accessible to people. That doesn't mean the value of what you're getting isn't right. And I think it's the same way with our salaries. Um, we, uh, you know, I do not believe we're overpaying the professionals that are doing extraordinary things for these institutions. Um, and in fact, probably underpaying in some cases. It's just the reality of we've got to find we're, uh, I, I, I also don't think it'll be decreasing. We've got to get through this crisis. And some cabinets, our cabinet took a pay cut voluntarily. Um, but I, I think it's very important that we as professionals continue to demonstrate the value of the work we do to the institution's future and show that that investment is worthwhile. Great. Yeah, that's a big question. We got that a, a few times. So thank you so much. I think all of your perspective is very, very helpful. Um, I think something that's also on people's minds are hiring these skilled professionals. Um, and of course, we're in this time where we're seeing spikes of, of COVID. Do you feel like you're going to hire teams to work remotely um, uh, to start um, and then relocate later? Um, and we're also getting the question are, you know, when you are hiring these people, is it going to be the expectation to have them visit campus? Um, is that happening? Um, I, Teresa, I know you're, you are working, you have onboarded remotely, I believe. Um, would you like to start this one? Sure. So first of all, let me just say how really strange it is to be starting a new job <laughs> remotely. It's just the strangest thing in the world. And uh, I feel like I should send a basket of goodies to my colleagues who onboarded me because I think they did a brilliant job, really. Um, it could have been so much worse. But I feel, um, you know, I've only been there 36 days and I feel like I'm at least six months worth of brought up to speed and um, have a, a you know, good relationship starting out with my colleagues. And so um, the people who were part of my onboarding process did an amazing job. Um, you know, I have to tell you, so I'm thinking, I'm of two minds. One, there is an old saying that says, start out as you mean to go, right? And so set expectations early on so that you aren't changing midstream on people. And so if your expectation is that you're hiring someone who ultimately you're going to want to be on campus every day. And I don't know if I think it's fair for you to say, you know, yeah, sure, go ahead, work remotely and we'll renegotiate down the road. Um, might be an opportunity to do that, um, but I'm wary, I'm wary of it. On the other hand, the truth of it is, We've talked a lot about adjust, being flexible, adjusting to the new normal. I think a lot of institutions are going to say, you know, look, this whole working remotely thing is working out. So you may actually reassess certain positions and do they really need to be on campus? I have a development officer right now who's living in Texas. She moved there to be able to take care of her family and she's doing brilliant work, right? And so it's caused us to reassess whether or not we really, the jobs that we thought couldn't be done remotely, um, and can they actually be done that way? Um, and is it a benefit to that team member? The other thing is we shouldn't assume that everybody wants to work from home because not everybody does, right? So it's both those things. Does it fit our colleagues? Does it fit the work of the institution? Um, and so I'm leaning more toward that, right? And so what really works for the institution? Can those jobs be done remotely? There's some savings personally um, in having shared space versus um, individual offices. And then there's just the reality of it, right? We don't really have any idea how long all of this is going to go on, right? And so as we think about how can we prepare the physical spaces um, in our environment so that people can 
um, it can effectively social physical distance. Um, that we are reworking our eating spaces, our cafeterias, um, the, the spaces where our students live, our offices. And so the truth of it is, if this goes on for some period of time, the reality will be that some people will be working remotely. So again, it's really a flexibility. What works for the institution, what works for the job, what works for the individual, and, um, and what's the actual environment they're working in? What do we need to do to be safe? But I actually, by the way, have a position right now that's open where um, the, um, the person who is doing the executive search for us said, you know, so what, would you be open to this person working remotely? Um, and um, for that particular position, I think probably not. I probably would be for other positions. Any thoughts for Nir Jane? Yeah, you know, it goes back to the whole innovation topic that we talked about earlier. You know, if, if we're gonna uh, talk the talk, we better walk the walk a little bit. Um, and I think it's a missed opportunity if we don't come out of this with some best practices or lessons learned. You know, I've, I've been doing this 22 years in the advancement profession. And early on, like Teresa said, I think all of us would never have gone for anything, anybody working remotely. I don't care what your position was, but you know, when I was at the University of Georgia, we built a really large regional team that half uh, were based in Athens, Georgia and went out to territories and then kind of led the charge to rethink hey, what about if we had people out in, in, in other territories? And that's not, you know, earth shattering kind of uh, leadership, so to speak, but it was for the University of Georgia at that time. But we ended up putting, you know, two fundraisers in California, one in New York, one in Nashville, Florida. I mean, we, we kind of mixed the teams. And, and I think we saw, we kind of proved to ourselves that if you're, if you're willing to be flexible a little bit and try it, whether it's a pilot program or whatever, um, I think good results it comes, can come from it. But a lot of times it also depends on, you gotta make sure you have the right person uh, taking that position that can handle working remotely uh, and also managers that can support teams that might be doing that. So it's, it's a little bit bigger thought process, but I don't think we should lose sight of coming out of this if there's some people that really have done it well and, and it's more efficient and more effective, why, why, why shouldn't we embrace it? To, to answer the question quickly, yes, I would hire remotely. Um, if the person too has to be comfortable with uh, being hired before they come to campus. And I, I just have to say, I've been blown away by the amount of community we've been able to create and what we've been able to do as a team remotely. I think it, you know, it's, it's like immersion. You never know until you're thrown into it. And we are 100% remote um, at, at American University and, um, and adjusting. And the, the one thing that I would say is I do not think there is, I think somebody asked a question on the chat. Um, is our profession going to change? Is our profession going to uh, come out ahead? Absolutely. We're going to be, we're going to be needed. We're going to have to change. And if you think about, if you're living in a place like Washington, D.C., where the square foot, well, California, Florida, it's all the same, right? It's that where property and the footprint of a university is so expensive. And we're thinking about the student experience and how that important that is. You have to start asking the question, 
do, for example, why did faculty had, um, it's easy to pick on faculty, uh, private offices because they had books and all of these things that they needed to have those offices for. Now that we're learning that we can work in a more paperless environment, can we do other things with our space that are gonna be better for the student experience, that are gonna be better for our alumni coming on campus so there's more space there without driving up the cost of the institution by purchasing more footprint. So it is disruption time and we should be ready to embrace it. Great, excellent, excellent answers. Thank you, thank you. And I have one last question, we're coming to the end, but I think this is such a good question. And if each one of you could to answer it uh, uh, just briefly, and then we'll, we'll end our time. But what's the best advice you received in your career that you still utilize today? I'll take yeah. it. Okay, cool. Oh. Oh, yeah, I'll be fast, Teresa, thank you. Um, I uh, was in a, a committee meeting, a development committee meeting years and years ago, and there was a brand new trustee, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the word, kind of a grandstander. And he was really, really tough on me. And, and I'll also admit to this entire group that I was, I mean, really tough on me and I wanted to cry. And so instead I pretended, I sneezed and pretended like I had to use the restroom. And <laughs> somebody followed me in, not a guy. Um, someone followed me in and said, oh, no, get back out there. When someone puts you on the spot like that, you gotta ask questions back. Just take a deep breath and say, what would you do? How would you do that? I'd love to hear your thought. It's simple advice, but it, ch it changed. It changed the way that I worked. Um, I would say some of the best advice that I received was when someone said, you know, when you are considering taking a job, consider not only the person you'd be working for, but the person that they work for, right? Because you may find yourself collaborating with um, doing work with that person's boss more often than you might think. And it's interesting when they were, I was talking about a particular job with a mentor um, at the time, and um, I decided to go ahead and take the job. And it's interesting that the person that I was working for who hired me left within three months, right? And so I ended up working with who? Their boss, right? And it turned out okay. But their point was well taken because not everybody got along well with that, with that individual. And so you wanna be sort of, that's a part of your strategy, right? Um, is to look at the person that you'd be working for, but also who do they work for? You'll probably find yourself talking with them, collaborating with them more often than you think. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, or I guess we all learned this early on in our careers. Uh, we got this, these, these great pieces of advice. I worked for a, a lady who was a senior VP, um, and she said to me, the difference between good fundraisers and really good fundraisers is the ability to think strategically behind the scenes and know how to position or think through the next two or three moves. And you know, I think that holds true, and if you have a management position, you're just a principal gift position, or if you're even looking for that next job opportunity, if you can't think through it behind the scenes of what you wanna do and how you wanna go about it, even though you may be wrong uh, a lot of the times, uh, I, I think that was the best advice that I ever heard is the ability to think strategically behind the scenes. It'll get you a whole lot better down the road than, than if you can't. 
Excellent. Great, great, great answers. Thank you so much for sharing that personal uh, side. Uh, this concludes the discussion today. I want to thank our panel for this lively conversation. I appreciate all the answers and openness. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this podcast. We hope this discussion has given you helpful ideas and strategies to navigate your advancement career post-COVID. Stay safe and thank you again. Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to visit wikifer.com to learn more about our expertise in leadership and view our open searches. You can follow Wikifer on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Wikifer. Wikifer makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and the recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Reliance on the information provided in this podcast is undertaken at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Third-party materials or the contents of any third-party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of Wikifer. Wikifer assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein. Wikifer makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. Wikifer expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.